Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, <clears throat> the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, Matt and I take a deep dive into the recent power grab by the Trump administration on administrative rulemaking. Recently, the Office of Budget and Management and Budget, OMB, published a memo for all federal agencies telling them that they must submit all proposed rules and regulatory guidance to the Office of Administration and Regulatory Affairs where it will make a determination of whether the rule is major or minor according to standards laid out in the Congressional Review, and then they will pass it along to Congress. We take a deep dive into this power grab, but also explain why it has practical implications for the compliance practitioner going forward. I know you will enjoy it. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance and founder and editor of Radical Compliance, for another deep dive of Compliance Into the Weeds, the podcast where we take a deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. And today we're going to geek out in a couple of ways. Matt wrote a great uh, post last Friday. I think he posted it, uh, perhaps... um, on Trump grabs at rulemaking, but it really speaks to several broader issues, not uh, so much for the Trump administration, but frankly, what I think is for businesses and specifically compliance officers. So Matt, with that introduction, welcome. Hello, Tom. So Matt, what what got your Irish up enough to uh, write a column about uh, the rulemaking being centered in the White House now? Well, um, th- this just seemed to me to be uh, newsworthy in the sense that this was a significant power grab that the Trump administration, specifically the White House, is trying to enforce through um, with, I think, implications for people who have to pay attention to regulation, uh, including you know actual people working at independent agencies like the SEC and others, but everybody else who has to comply with those rules, like some real implications for these audiences that I'm willing to suspect the Trump administration has not fully thought through the significance of what it is trying to do here. I'm not even entirely sure what they're trying to do with rulemaking will work, but um, let me tell you what they are doing. So last Thursday, the Office of Management and Budget, which uh, is technically part of the White House, if you would say the Trump White House, the OMB would be part of it. Uh, They published a memo for all federal agencies, every single one, including all of the independent agencies. So that would be the SEC, that would be the Federal Trade Commission, that would be the EPA, that would be the Food and Drug Administration, every administrative agency under the sun. Uh, They all received a memo saying that starting on May 11th, 
any proposed rules or regulatory guidance that those agencies might have must first go to the White House and the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. I believe you acronymize that office as OIRA, maybe OIRA, I'm not sure, (laughs) but I call it OIRA. Um, The Office of Management and Budget said that any new rule or regulatory guidance that an agency is proposing must first go to OIRA for review for compliance with the Congressional Review Act, which means that uh, OIRA gets to say, is this new proposal going to be a major rule or a minor rule? If it is a major rule, and we can get to what is major or minor later, but if it's a major rule, then that goes to Congress, which will have two months to review it and vote whether to approve it or not. If they take no action, it does get approved. But this basically is a way for the Trump White House to funnel all potential rulemaking and guidance that is out there through the White House, through the OIRA and the Office of Management and Budget. So they get a chance to say, we are going to let this go through unimpeded or nope, we're going to shift it off to Congress and they get two more months to see whether they like it or not and they might vote it down. Um, So a big bottleneck that the Trump administration is trying to create, why this is newsworthy is because until now, independent agencies typically have not had to do this. So how quickly might these reviews happen? We are unclear. What might happen if an agency doesn't do this? We can get into that too, but basically that's unclear. But suddenly the Trump administration is trying to make a one-stop shop for all rulemaking and other regulatory guidance. And we should explore what that means too. Um, for all the independent, all agencies everywhere, including a lot of them that compliance officers deal with. So, Matt, I rarely get to play lawyer on this podcast, but I'm going to play lawyer here and just uh, tell all of our listeners, uh, this power grab by the Trump administration was uh, not constitutional. The Congressional Review Act allows congressional review. It says nothing about OIRA, OODA, mm-hmm. or any other White House type of review. So when somebody takes this up, uh, I think it's going to be thrown out. But even if um, Tom on administrative law is proven correct yet again, that's not going to stop the uh, probably slowdown and halting of congressional, um, excuse me, of, of regulatory rulemaking that you are more concerned about as well. So why don't you maybe take us into what you see the scope of this could actually mean for both the regulators and we out here in the compliance world? Well, sure. You know, first, before we go too far down that road, let me just say for anybody who's listening and thinking, well, wait a minute, what does this have to do with that two-for-one regulatory kill order that Donald Trump so proudly pronounced on like day two of his administration in 2017. You know, that where every new rule an agency proposes, it must also propose two others to be decommissioned. What? How does that relate to this? Well, in one key way is that the two-for-one regulatory kill order back in 2017 does not apply to independent agencies. Uh, And that's quite clear. That is in the law. And even when they published the two-for-one kill order, uh, it had to say this order does not apply to independent agencies, which are the vast number of agencies that most compliance officers we talk to that you're worried about. You know, Um, it the two-for-one kill order does apply to, say, the Department of Labor, Department of Justice, any department 
Yes, that gets swept up in this. But all the others were exempt. Well, this Congressional Review Act does apply to all those independent agencies. But you are correct, Tom, that the the letter of that statute does not say the agency must first go to the White House and submit its proposal for review. On the other hand, it is also true that for many years, and the Review Act was passed in 1996, for many years, independent agencies just didn't bother with this. They just put out the rules for comment. They adopted them as they always had. But the Congressional Review Act stop, um, that got passed over in the regulatory train. So this is some effort to try and, I guess, tame the supposed administrative state that so many Republicans and conservatives think is out of control. Uh, I'll be the first to say there's a lot of regulation, but I would also be the first to say this is a big, interactive, interdependent economy. Regulation comes with the territory. It's more about smart regulation. Um, what intrigues me most, however, is that little bit in the OMB memo from last week that says, all proposed rules and other regulatory guidance. Well, what is that? Because in theory, you could say that uh, the Justice Department's FCPA guidance from 2012, well, it literally is a guide to complying with the FCPA. You could call that regulatory guidance. So if that were, say, to be updated for 2019 or 2020, um, clearly the the Trump administration, and specifically the Trump White House, Office of Management and Budget and the OIRA people, they would say, no, Justice Department, you can't publish any of those new guides. We get to review that first, and we will decide if it's major or minor. And if we decide it's major, then it gets to go to Congress, and Congress would actually get a chance to vote down your updated and revised 2020 guidance on whatever. Um, I also have grave concerns that the ability to review these proposed rules or regulatory guidance, you know, you're only going to succeed in that if you actually understand what you're reading. And I am hard pressed to believe that OIRA has the manpower or the staff and competency to do a lot of that. So anybody here who might be on the internal audit or internal control side of the house, you might see that, you know, for example, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, let's say they come up with a new standard for auditing data analytics use in um, audits of internal control, which everybody's using data analytics now. We do not have a standard for how to audit that work. The PCAOB would be the body to come up with that. And now, at least in theory, the White House is saying, no, we get to review whether that is going to be major or minor. A major rule would cost 100 million or more across the whole economy in compliance costs. That would be one of the criteria. Now, I think it is fair to say that in a $20 trillion economy, probably these costs might be 100 million. I don't know that for a fact, but you could easily see the White House saying that this is a major rule. So we're going to give this uh, an additional review. It's going to go to Congress. Does anybody really want congressmen voting on an audit standard for data analytics? Because that is easily something I could see happening if somebody in the Trump White House got a bee in their bonnet that they wanted to make this their pet cause. Um, all sorts of other uh, guidance around complex environmental issues, uh, Federal Communications Commission, if you ever want to dabble in net neutrality again, or other sorts of um, complex issues like that, even if you don't want a rule. 
even if you just want to put out some guidance, um, it could wind up being under close review from the Trump White House. And Tom, I take your point that agencies don't have to do this. Well, number one, I think a lot of agencies probably are sympathetic to the Trump cause. Uh, When you look at, say, who is in charge of the EPA now um, or who might be in charge of the Food and Drug Administration or others, I actually have a somewhat warm spot for the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, who I think does a fairly good job at being independent and level-headed in a Trump administration world. Uh, But, you know, you have to think that a lot of agencies are going to use this as a further chance to slow the adoption of rules or other guidance that compliance officers rely on all the time to figure out what they're supposed to do. And slow or contradictory or incoherent approaches to rulemaking and guidance does nobody who listening to this podcast does nobody any favors. So I guess a couple of thoughts, Matt. First of all, uh, with the Congress we currently have, and more specifically the majority leader of the Senate, uh, apparently having given a moratorium on voting on anything uh, that comes out of the House, I seriously doubt that we would have, ever have any votes by Congress so that major major uh, regulatory changes would probably uh, go 60 days and become law. Um, That's possible, yeah. And, but the other uh, thought is that I think many of the political appointees in the administration do want to modify regulations and do want to change regulations so that um, even if uh, there are a large number of uh, sympath- sympathicos in the deep administrative state uh, sympathetic to the Trump administration. This is going to equally inhibit them uh, from moving forward with their own agendas as well. Uh, there are a lot of people who have said that, that this seems to be um, you know, basically just a power grab, but it's yeah, it has this unintended consequence that any move from the regulatory agencies would be subject to this review, including theoretically a deregulatory move or a modification of a rule, but um, not repealing it outright. Like this is just going to slow everything down. Um, my, I do have one interesting question for me: is that what happens if an agency head does not? do this and just thumbs their nose at the requirement. Um, Because in theory, you're right that the Congressional Review Act doesn't say that they must, but they serve generally at the pleasure of the president or, you know, if they can only be fired for cause, which I think was uh, one of the issues around the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Like in theory, if that happens, um, you know, could you be fired for cause for doing something that the for not doing something the president told you, but is not required by law that you do. I could see that being a mess. And Tom, you said maybe this could be challenged in court. I also am curious, like who would have legal standing to challenge this plan? Um, And I think it would probably have to be some outsider who does not like the Trump administration. There's no shortage of those people, but I don't know that they would have legal standing. Um, I don't know if lawyer Tom has an opinion on that, but that was sure, on one other question. Congress has the ability to cha- cha- challenge this law, specifically the House. Yeah, There's I suppose that's true. says that the White House, through OMB, has a preclearance role in this. Clearly, there is a congressional review role, and uh, that is uh, enacted into law, but there's nothing in there about an OMB role in this. So if the House is so inclined, uh, they can do so. 
You know, the the other thing that interests me, and it's a little bit broader in scope than just what I wrote here in the blog post, but there is definitely this undercurrent in the administration and with some agencies or agency officials against what they like to call shadow guidance. So Hester Pierce, who is a commissioner on the SEC, and she is a Republican, and she is a pretty devout libertarian in her views. She was giving a speech not long ago where she said that shadow guidance is a real problem. Well, what would that be? That might be a no action letter the SEC gives to a company. Yes, you can exclude this proposal from your proxy statement, some shareholder proposal that you don't like. And if you do it, we will take no action. That's what the no action letters are. And basically, Hester Pierce was saying that no action letters are shadow guidance, because if you are company A and you get a no action letter, well, companies B, C, and D who are in your industry would then take the no action letter. They'd read it and say, oh, okay, I guess we can do the same thing. And Hester Pierce apparently has some sort of a problem with that as shadow guidance that is answerable to nobody. I I don't really know what to say to that. You know, if a company writes to the SEC with the question, the SEC is supposed to answer. It's supposed to be a public document. Other people can read it. And if all the facts in your situation are very similar to a no action letter, then it's not shadow guidance for you to say it probably would also apply to me. It's common sense. Um, But you see this again and again lately that uh, anything that is not formally proposed commented on, revised, and then finally adopted, and then reviewed by the White House and congressional reviewed, and then voted up and down. If it doesn't go through that whole gauntlet, therefore it must be somehow shadow guidance and not appropriate. And that just, to me, like flies in the face of common sense of how compliance officers and regulatory affairs people have to work. You can't wait for the glacier to move. You know, you have to do something as risks arise. Uh, My other big concern with this chokehold or attempted chokehold on rulemaking would be how disastrous this could be in a real crisis. And Tom, you and I were both around in like the summer of 2008 when the SEC and the Fed and other financial regulators were basically making up rules on the fly because the financial system was coming down around their ears. Some of those rules seemed to be pretty daft. Um, Some of them were clearly not thought through, but this approach, in the midst of a financial crisis, should we see one again, does not strike me as a rarely a useful way to grapple with um, emergency situations. So like, why are we doing this, folks? Where Where is the problem that this is the proper solution? I don't see it. So Matt, let me change. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left, but I wanted to maybe change the focus a little bit to ask you to not only consider this grab at rulemaking, but We've had a new nominee uh, to the Securities and Exchange Commission and how that all might play into some of the things that we've discussed in this podcast previously that changes Jay Clayton has really uh, committed to through the rulemaking process. Yeah, so that is an interesting little sidebar to this whole conversation is uh, President Trump has at long last moved forward to with filling a open slot on the Securities and Exchange Commission for a Democratic nominee. And under the law, there are five commissioners. No more than three can be from the same party. So right now there are only four. Uh, There is Jay Clayton, two other Republican nominee or commissioners seated, and one Democratic commissioner and a vacant seat. So people have pointed out that when you have only four 
And there are two staunch Republicans, Heather, Heather Pierce and Elad Roisman, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. If you have two staunch Republicans and you have Robert Jackson on the Democrat, well, Jay Clayton, if he wanted to, say, impose corporate penalties on something, on somebody and voted with Robert Jackson, there's two votes, but now the uh, Republican commissioners are opposing corporate penalties. There's two others. You have a 2-2 stalemate, so there can be no penalties. So people may have seen lately some legal bulletins floating around the theory that Donald Trump might never nominate a second Democratic commissioner, because if you leave it at this four person, you know, hobbled undermanned commission, uh, Jay Clayton might never get a three-way majority to support some action he wants, um, especially around corporate penalties. And there are a lot of lawyers who are saying, well, maybe you don't have to worry about corporate penalties anymore. Now that the, uh, Donald Trump has been nominated, he's nominated Allison Lee. She is a Democrat. She is from Denver. Um, her uh, appointment is apparently likely to be confirmed by the Senate when we don't know, but nobody is saying this is a problematic nomination. She's going to get confirmed sometime soon. So there will be two Democrats and two Republicans who presumably would be on opposite sides of whatever your issue is, but specifically around corporate penalties. If two Democrats want the penalties and two Republicans say no, the tie-breaking vote gets to go to Jay Clayton. So Jay Clayton essentially gets to be his own swing vote, which is exactly what an SEC commissioner or an SEC chairman would want. Um, so I think that this will enhance his power to be able to put off the two re Republican commissioners, even though he is nominally a fellow Republican. If he ever wanted to overrule them, now he can. Before, he could not. Um, so issues like corporate penalties, um, exempting SOX 404B compliance for more companies, uh, revamping the SEC whistleblower awards program. Uh, quarterly reporting and reducing that disclosure. All of these SEC policy issues uh, that may be coming up, um, at least until now, the two Republicans could have blocked Jay Clayton if they really wanted to. But with a Democratic commissioner, now Jay Clayton will have much more power pretty much to get through what he wants. Now, an SEC chairman generally was able to do that anyways, but if Jay Clayton can be his own swing vote, now he's really going to have that kind of power. Remains to be seen what they do adopt, and then what are they going to do about this OIRA OMB review and Congressional Review Acts, and who knows. Um, but at the very least, like Jay Clayton, if you are a fan of Jay Clayton, or at least admire him as a worthy adversary, if you don't like all of his actions, like he's got a lot of power going his way right now, and you're likely to see him do more in 2019 and 2020. So Matt, uh, earlier today I did a podcast where one of the issues was the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report 2019, which talked about political instability of Western governments as yep. one of the key risks going forward. And here I think we have a, a, a very tangible example of political instability that literally could go down to the anti-corruption compliance practitioner uh, compliance program level if the Department of Justice and SEC wanted to update the 2012 guidance but could not do so because of this and everything in between, including uh, many of the things you talked about with, with Jay Clayton and even whistleblower awards. That is very true. I mean, I, I don't want to get too hyperventilated about 
that in particular, but um, you could. Don't forget, we're going to have a new deputy attorney general, and what might he do with FCPA enforcement policy? And we can cover that some other week, Tom. But for compliance officers specifically who work in finance and your institution is regulated by the Fed or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, my best reading of that OMB policy memo from last week This is aimed at your agencies. That's what they want. They want to curb the CFPB and they want to curb the Fed. Um, Is that useful? I mean, look, there are probably rules that people don't like from the Fed or the CFPB, but um, bottlenecking them up in White House review is probably not going to be the best way to get smart regulation. Call me crazy, but I actually would like to see President Trump nominate qualified, competent people for the agencies who then do their job thoughtfully without further interference from political appointees in the White House who probably have poor grasp of the full nuance and complication of what we're doing here in regulatory world. Matt, that's a great phrase to uh, end this podcast on. So uh, I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions of me, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I will link to Matt's article in the show notes, but you should definitely check it out and you should follow this story because it may have a lot of implications for the anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, and export control compliance practitioner going forward. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic, Into the Weeds of Compliance. Compliance Into the Weeds is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.